of our history as Canadians and British, um, 335,000 soldiers, Allied soldiers, were rescued within about five days. Without giving you away anything that happens in the movie, even though we know the end of the story, there's amazing scenes of soldiers clinging on for dear life as uh, civilian boats are picking them up. And they, many British people took their kind of holiday boats, went across the English Channel because the Navy did not have enough to be able to rescue this number of people. And so people like you and myself took their boats, went across the English Channel, and literally piled soldiers onto it while under fire. It's the most amazing and incredible piece of history. But there are scenes in the movie of young soldiers clinging on for dear life onto the side of boats, desperate to get into the boat so they could come home. And it got me thinking, what is it that we truly cling to? It also got me thinking, what is it that now in our modern culture that we would say is an essential that people would cling to? So I did some Googling, and can I say in advance, we are far removed from those young adults many of whom were aged 18, 19, 20 years of age. We are far removed from that kind of grit, courage, and willingness to give life to their country. But this is what our culture said was the most important thing, the most essential thing that they cling to. There was many different uh, ideas, but this was one particular list I found. One of the number one thing that people said that they could not live without, that they have to cling to in our present age, regardless of their age, number one, Wi-Fi. And now, some of you are brave going, mm, yep, kind of agree with that. Got to admit, because how am I going to get through the next 30 minutes with Pastor Glenn speaking without my Wi-Fi? Number two, microwave. Number three, cell phone. Number four, and part of me kind of went, yeah, I I kind of agree with this one. Number four, coffee. (laughs) Number five, I do not understand, cannot relate to in any way, shape, or form. Number five was duvet. Duvet, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, number six, and this one I definitely cannot relate to, but maybe some of the, uh, maybe some of the gents in the room can, uh, hair straightener. <laughs> number six, most important thing that our culture clings to as an essential is a hair straightener. And I read this the same day that I watched Dunkirk. And I thought, we've come a long way, haven't we? And yet we're going to read today about a young man called David in Psalms who actually would say that neither the the generation, the Dunkirk generation, if you will, nor the present culture that we live in have got it right. Because he discovered something far better than the soldiers in our culture that he clinged to and and, and it changed him. And And I believe this morning it will change us. I have to give you a gentle, pastoral, pastoral, loving warning. Parts of this sermon may smart a bit. It's a challenging one. It was a challenging one for me to prepare 
And yet I truly believe that as a church, if we can cling on to that which David clung on to, as expressed in Psalm 27, not only would it change our lives and our children's lives, but it would actually make a radical difference in our culture that is desperately in need, that is desperately in need of hope and is, is, is in need of, of an answer, and they are clinging to things just that are essentially just going to sink. They're clinging desperately just like those soldiers in Dunkirk, the problem is, is they're clinging on to something that ultimately will fail them. Let's read in Psalm 27, the first three verses, and what an incredible psalm it is. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. We're going to move on in through the psalm in just a minute, but I want you to notice something very important. That David is starting this psalm by declaring and describing what his life situation is right now. He is literally surrounded by armies who want to kill him, a king that has rejected him, and we'll read later on, a family that also has forsaken him, and yet he is now starting to describe to us the one thing, the the one essential thing in life that he says he's clinging to, and that actually brings him life. The one thing that I'm saying to us this morning, if we can cling to as well, we will find that it is not, number one, an option for our life, it is an essential for our life. If I have this one thing, David is saying, all will be well. Look at what he says in verse 3. Though an army besiege me, I will not fear, he says. Though war break out against me, I will be confident. He's describing external threats to his life, external pressures. And you and I can relate to that in some way. Not necessarily armies encamping against you, and, and I really hope that's not true, but external pressure that you feel is crushing you, David is saying, I'm not going to fear, and I am going to be confident, because I have this one thing. I'm clinging to this one thing. And then in verse 10, he says, though my father and mother forsake me, God will receive me. So now he's describing, verse 10 please, now describing an internal pressure. An internal pressure that is saying, my own family is rejecting me. See, we can cope with external pressure with those that are around us, those loved ones that we have are supporting us. It may be intensely difficult, and yet we have that anchor in those loved ones. David doesn't even have that, and he still says, God will receive me, because I'm clinging on to this one thing. He's not yet described what this one thing is, but we can see in verse 6 more evidence of the power of what he is clinging to. Verse 6, my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. He's saying everything else in life is optional. Everything else in life is secondary to that one thing that he is clinging to. Even so, he, even the, in verse 3, we read that he has war breaking out against me. He says, you can even take my life away. I have this one thing. I will be confident. I will be secure. I will not fear. More than that, I'm going to sing You know, the last thing in my mind when I am going through challenges and difficulties is to kick back and sing. 
you know, to crack on the tunes and just rejoice and celebrate. I'm like, no. But David says, you know what? You can throw the worst at me externally, internally, my family, the armies and camp. You can take my life away. I'm going to sing. Now, I do need to say something here that's very important, especially those of us who have the a joyful responsibility of bringing up young people or giving, up, uh, uh, sorry, giving guidance to children. Let, let, let me tell you something here. This is really important. I have four children. My eldest is 23. I have a 20-year-old, 3-year-old daughter, a 20-year-old daughter, an 18-year-old son, and a 12-year-old son. So, I, you know, um, I'm starting to go gray on the sides uh, one side each for the girls, and my boys are working on my beard, uh, going slowly gray. Um, David, David doesn't take anything for granted. He's not assuming life is going to be good to him. This is not the prosperity gospel, my friends. The Bible says trouble will come. And as parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts, mentors and coaches... Let me tell you, the most important thing outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can teach your children is not how to succeed in life, not how to thrive in life in the sense of doing well as far as our culture says, not to put them in the best team or the best school or spend time with them, giving them everything they need. That is not the most essential doctrine that they can learn. Here's what I believe as a dad and from the scriptures that I have seen in my experience and my reading, the most important thing you can teach your children is this. You cannot control life. God is sovereign. He has a plan that is over and above and bigger and more beautiful than you are. And regardless of the choices that you make in life, no matter how much work you put in at school, and it's good to do those things, No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try and succeed, life will slam into your soul with such force it will take your breath away at times. And some of you who have more gray hairs than me would say an amen to that. Some of you are too young to believe me. But there will come a day when life will remind you that you have no control at all. And David is reminded of this. He's not taking anything for granted. And the most important thing you can teach your children is that God is in control. God is sovereign. And regardless of what life is throwing against you, externally or internally, if you are anchored and clinging onto one of those things, God Almighty, then there is hope, there is confidence, then there is joy to be found. That is the most important thing you can teach your children. So what is this one thing? I've, I've alluded to clinging on to this one thing. So what is this one thing? Well, David's going to tell us in verse 4. The essential one thing is this. One thing I ask from the Lord. One thing I ask from the Lord. Notice he is not going to ask for the armies to retreat. He's not going to ask for his family to change. He's not going to ask for his circumstances to be taken away. The one thing that he is clinging to, that he is asking of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The one thing he wants to do is dwell, camp out, tabernacle, to spend his life focusing and gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Give me that, he says, and you can take everything else away. 
Give me the opportunity to gaze upon God's beauty, to contemplate and praise and worship everything that he is. Not to ask him to take things away, but just to sit and contemplate and worship and quieten ourselves and gaze. When was the last time you did that? You know that beautiful feeling, and I had this opportunity a few days ago, where you stand on some vista and you look across And nature cries out the glory of God and everything inside of you quietens and you just contemplate. When was the last time you did that? Just in your living room or in church. Maybe a challenge I could give you this morning is this week, put time aside, 30 minutes aside to sit and do nothing but thank him. Do nothing but praise him. Don't ask him for anything apart from more of him. Ask him what David asked. One thing I ask, meditate on this verse. Lord, I'm not asking you to change my circumstances. All I'm asking you is I want more of you because you are so wonderful. Your character is so beautiful. Your position is so sovereign that everything seems to be falling apart around me, but I will praise my Lord. Do that. And I would say within a couple of minutes, there will be this sense of peace and godliness that will come upon your life that will take your breath away and very quickly replace some of the angst that you may be feeling. And here's what happens as a church and a group of people when we do this together. See, beauty is an interesting thing. We have an insatiable appetite for the beautiful. We have an insatiable appetite for beauty, whether that be a beautiful landscape or a beautiful piece of art, whether it's a beautiful car or uh, a beautiful person, whatever it might be, we love beauty. We, We have this appetite for it. We want it. And David is saying, I have found everything that I need in God. I don't need anything else. I have found this beauty. But what happens when you gaze upon beauty? See, as a church, if we all gather and gaze and focus upon the beauty of God, if as a church and a community, that is what we cling to, three things happen very quickly. Number one, beauty creates community. Beauty creates community. C.S. Lewis does some really lovely writing about how uh, joy is complete in worship when we enjoy something together. So let me give you an example. You may see something beautiful and enjoy it. But when you encourage somebody to come and join with you, and they also enjoy it with you, your enjoyment of it increases. I have this experience in something very, very simple at home. This happens constantly. I'm a very excitable person, as you probably can tell. I I get very enthusiastic about what my wife would say. And we've been married almost 25 years now. I've known her almost 30 She would say some of the things I get excited about aren't really worth getting excited over. I get very excited about Manchester United. Very, very excited. Like, if you're in my house when Manchester United are playing, you will see us jumping across the room, headering in fake balls, you know, like just screaming and hollering because this is my team, this is where I'm from, I love it. And so I, I find beauty in that. That's a beautiful thing for me. You're going... You're odd. And my wife would agree. So here's what happens. I'll watch a goal and I'll pause it and I'll go and get Sarah. I'll say, Sarah, come and watch this goal. And she'll stand and go, oh. And something inside of me sinks. So over the years, what I've done, and you're going to really think I'm quite pathetic now. And so I'm being transparent. Don't judge me. God loves me. 
is I actually have said to her, this happened uh, very early in our marriage when I identified that she doesn't get as enthusiastic about me about the same things. I would run and say, Sarah, come and see the goal. You can pretend to be enthusiastic. I don't mind. And then I'll kind of canter back into the front living room and show and she'll go, wow. And I know it's fake and I don't care. I'm like, I know, right? Look. Yeah, that's great. And she walks away mumbling prayers under her breath that I'm very grateful for. Joy is complete. Community is created when we look at the beautiful God together. As a church, when we gather in this place and we worship, then community is created as we gaze upon the beautiful one. And it changes us. Number two, beauty creates confidence. See, beauty creates an escape. It creates this sense of hope. We can feel eternity resonating behind the beautiful thing. It's like we have an echo of something better. We're reminded that there's something big and more profound at work, and we can find confidence in that, that it's going to be okay. And so when David looks at the beauty of God, he's reminded it's going to be okay. And we can experience that even in the small micro things in life. When we have our breath taken away, we somehow forget what is happening, and we have a hope. Leonard Bernstein, the composer, is an atheist, said this. This is really interesting. He said, when I listen to Beethoven's fifth, I can't help but believe and feel there's something right in the universe that will never let me down. He is sensing the echo of the eternal. And when we come to church and when we sit in our living room, it's just you and your Bible and you're gazing upon the beauty of God, you can get that sense too. So beauty creates community, it it creates confidence, and then also beauty creates cause. Here's what happens, and our community needs more of this. I will lovingly say, carefully say, our church needs more of this. Beauty creates confidence, uh, sorry, cause because it makes you small. Your, me, myself, and mine becomes less important when you are focused with something way bigger and more beautiful than you. So your angst, your criticisms, our cynicism gets reduced when we gaze upon the beauty of God. I would even go as far as to say very carefully that the more cynical and critical we are, the less we are gazing upon the beauty of God. Because the more you gaze upon the beauty of God, the less important we become. And it causes us to look outwards. It creates a cause within us. It causes us to want to do more than just what we are focused on and more of what God is focused on. David had an experience of this early on in his life. This dismantling of self-centeredness had started on the side of the mountain with the sheep. And it's played out very vividly in that beautiful story when he's facing Goliath in the valley. And, and, and hours before, if you read the account, it's an amazing account. He actually starts calling, causing this ruckus in the Israelite camp, saying, isn't somebody going to go and do something about Goliath? And in our, some of the original versions, some of our old versions, he says this, isn't there a cause? Isn't there a reason? Do we not have purpose? 
God is so beautiful, so big, and this man is standing in defiance. Somebody needs to do something. You see, David had caught the beauty of God early on in life, and it had caused him to actually dismantle himself and put God and his cause first, and he was surrounded by cynical Israelite soldiers sat literally on the side of the hill with the Philistines on the other side and Goliath in the middle insulting God and David is in the middle of the Israelites causing problems saying isn't there a cause shouldn't we fight friends do we not have a cause our community desperately desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ don't ever ever put yourself in a place where you are cocooned from the hurt and the pain that our community feel Because that is not Christianity. That's being an Israelite on the side of the hill. Being cynical and critical of what was going on. You see, David reached out. He had a cause. So how do we get to this? In verse 8 it says, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face I will seek. This verse has a profound teaching for us as Christians. And so I really want you to listen very carefully to this as I lovingly expound what this verse is saying to us this morning. Because David is saying two things. He's saying he's heard, my heart says of you, seek his face. And then he says he's acting, therefore I will seek. Do you see that? He's not just sitting on the side of the hillside looking at Goliath and saying, well, yeah, I hear the call. He's actually willing to go into the middle of the valley saying, yes, I will seek. And as Christians here this morning, we hear our heart constantly. If you're a Christian, then you hear this all the time, this constant wooing and pulling initiated by God to come and seek. If you're not having that inside of you, you're not a Christian. The Spirit of God is not alive and well in you. And that's okay because you have a beautiful opportunity to come to Him, seek forgiveness, Look to Jesus on the cross and have your sins forgiven. And you too will have this. My heart says you, you seek his face. But as a church overall, not just Willow Park Church, but in many years of traveling and speaking, I can see this and I identify it in my own life and it brings me a great deal of conviction, is we camp out in the first part. My heart says of you, you seek his face. And that is sufficient for us. Well, I feel God. I'll sing about him, I'll talk about him, I'll join a group. But actually putting time aside and prioritizing him and seeking him and living out my faith in front of others, I'll I'll leave that to the enthusiastic few. And I might be a little bit critical of them while they're at it. Because they're a bit loud and obnoxious. And they don't do things the way I'd like them to do. They don't do things that I'm not doing the way that I'd like to do them even though I'm not doing them. My heart says of you, you see James says this really interesting thing in verse 22, and we don't like these verses because they make us uncomfortable Christians, they make us feel, this is God speaking to us, look at, look at verse, uh, sorry, it's, this is me reading because this was a last minute edition, James 1, 22, write it down if you've got a journal and look it up later, he says, James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't deceive yourself by thinking that hearing is good enough. Don't deceive, can we have that verse up again? Do not deceive yourself to think about the, the verse 8, thank you. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that's sufficient. It's not. That's what James is saying. 
You can leave that verse up. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he is like. So we look and go, oh, yeah, I need to sort that out. I feel conviction over that. That's right. I need to do something. Okay, let's get on with my week. And we walk away and we forget. And James says, you're deceived. And you're saying, yes, Glenn, that, that's awesome. And then, and, then, and then we walk away and we forget and we don't apply it to the, every aspect of our lives. And it leads to cynicism and criticism and not transform lives. And so what happens is when we go into our culture that is desperately in need of the essence of Christ that lives in you, it doesn't see nor feel nor hear that essence because we are not actually following through with that which God has given us to do. It just gets like anybody else. You're hoping that somehow Jesus will exude out of you, that they might pick up on the gospel by your mere presence. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Like my fragrance just is the gospel. Well, maybe if I open up enough doors and be kind to people at work, that somehow they'll, they'll just repent and beg for forgiveness from Jesus. No, we have to open our mouths. We have to give them the good news. I've been a pastor since I was 19 in some shape or form. Some of the shapes weren't great at different parts of my life, but I'm learning slowly, I hope. After 25 years, I truly believe that if we cling on to this, this one thing, the beauty of God, then it will, it will bring community, it will bring hope, it will bring confidence, and it will cause us to go and share the faith that we say is so important to us. Rather than just thinking and singing about it. Let me give you an illustration. It's not my illustration, but I think it works well. We have, I have two boys at home, a 12-year-old and an 18-year-old, and I figure at this time of the, the year that it should be part of their chore to, to cut the grass. The, 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 the amount of effort it takes for me as a dad to get these two boys to cut the grass is immense. I, 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 just, I just need a nap just after the conversation. And so imagine I've asked one of them, and and I have to be careful because the older one's girlfriend's mom and dad are in the congregation, so I need to project that he's a great guy, Steve. Um, But imagine I say to Luke, Luke, would you cut the grass? And he says, Dad, leave it with me. I'm your man. I'll cut your grass. And I go, and I come back after being in the church office or out and about doing ministry, and I see the grass hasn't been cut, and I go, Luke. What about the grass? And he went, Dad, I didn't cut the grass, but here's what I did do. I sang some beautiful songs about cutting the grass. <laughs> and it touched me and others. It was great. Luke, cut the grass. That's my command, cut the grass. Okay, Dad, I'll cut the grass. So I go and I come back and I cut, grass is not cut the next day. And I say, Luke, what, what about the grass, son? He said, well, Dad... Me and some buddies got together over coffee and we talked about cutting the grass. It was great. It was awesome. Changed our lives. But look, the grass isn't cut. Dude, cut the grass. Okay, Dad, I'll cut the grass. Next day, same thing. But Dad, we actually, in my group, studied about what cutting grass actually means in our culture. We looked at the word cut, and we did an expedition, expedition, expositional study 
on the word cut and the and grass. And we now know what cutting the grass really means. But Luke, what about the grass, son? Next day, Dad, I've devoted my life to cutting the grass. Even though I've not cut it, I'm going to one day. Did you get my picture? Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Not sing, talk, study. All that is beautiful and good. But it's not the command. The command is to worship the beauty of God and that will create the sense of cause. And friends, our church and our community desperately needs a group of people that are clinging on to the beauty of God that won't just talk about it but will actually seek it. They won't be cynical and say, well, we'll get round to it. But actually, today, tomorrow, and when the week when church actually happens, they will actually do it by number three. This is how we seek the beauty of God. We patiently prioritize Jesus. In the verse 14, it says, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. You see, David is telling us this is not an instant. This is setting time aside, prioritizing it. You see, David had spent his life prioritizing Jesus, prioritizing the beauty of God. And we have the perfect expression of God himself. As we read in John chapter 1, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling, or tented, tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is now, John is saying, Jesus is the tent. If you want to see the beauty of God, then you need to look towards Jesus. Jesus is the place where you'll see his beauty. Jesus is the one where you will, he will transform you. Jesus is the one that will give you hope. Jesus is the one that will give you community. Jesus is the answer for this dying and hopeless community who are clinging on desperately to a boat that is sinking. Jesus will never sink. He gaze upon Jesus and all that he did on the cross for you and I, and instead of us, you gaze upon what he said and what he did, then true beauty emerges, and then do what he said for us to do. Because here's the incredible thing. He tents or tabernacles or dwells and lives in us, Christians, We have the beauty of God living in us. We have everything that we need. Why are we not doing it? Why are we not going into our community and actually openly and unapologetically declaring the good news of Jesus Christ? And I'm not making an assumption that this is for everyone. But by the fact that we have empty seats shows me And I'm not being critical. I say this with an ache. Shows me that if as a church we actually gazed upon the beauty of God, felt the community, sensed the hope, got the confidence, heard the cause, went out and became doers of the word, not just hearers but we actually, actually seek him, then I promise you that there would not be empty seats in this place. I don't know how many people are here this morning, maybe four or five hundred. It would take just a few this week to make a decision, to walk across the room and to ask questions like, hey, you don't know me, but can I pray for you? There's somebody in our congregation who did that this last week. 
They went over to somebody they didn't know because they felt that God had called them. They heard. Do you remember that verse, verse 8? They heard and then they followed through. They went over to this person who was older than them and, and was in a different generation and said, you don't know me, but can I pray for you? And this person looked up and he said, do you know my story? And he started to cry. And for half an hour they talked and, and the Christian heard the story and then at the end had the opportunity to pray. And then they had this opportunity to say, hey, let, maybe we could do this again. If a handful of us lived like that, we would turn the city upside down. So the question is not if we're able. The question is when are we going to start? Because I love this church. And I love how God has pulled this, if I say this carefully, motley crew, (laughs) eclectic group together. And you all have your circles of influence. And if you're not doing this, what are we doing? Do you really believe it? Do you remember how it changed your life? Do you remember how it transformed your world? That is in us to go and take into the world. And maybe you're hearing this morning God say, seek my face. Just like David heard it. Are we going to walk away from the mirror and go, well, that was okay. Didn't really like the songs. British guy. Maybe I'll come back next week. Maybe not. Certainly not going to give money to it. Is that, is that Christianity? Or is Christianity seeing the life and the beauty of God himself being expressed through and in you and in your words and where you go, that you can go into Starbucks or your, your workplace and you can kick open the door. All of you, I give you permission to it. Kick open the door and think to yourself, not only am I arriving, but Jesus in me has arrived. Let's see what he wants to do today. That would change our city. Wouldn't it? So what do we do from now? It starts with confession. It starts with the recognition that perhaps we've looked in the mirror for many, many years and just walked away. We've heard for many years and we've just not taken that next step. So this morning I want to encourage us to start by saying, like confessing before him and I'm going to pray and you can join in with me because I feel the weight of this as well. And then this week, this week, not next week, this week, ask God, who is it you want me to pray for? Who is it you want me to share the gospel with? And then follow through. And next week, maybe even this week, you'll email me, go, Glenn, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. I actually did what you said. And this is what happened. And that would be where community and beauty and hope and challenge and cause all come together. And then we'd feel that we are actually doing that which God has called us to do, which is be him in this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.